So turn there, or turn back, to Matthew chapter 16, continuing our series of expositions through this book, and we're picking up part two in this text to talk about the four marks of a true church. Now, we're getting the very fundamentals about what makes the church the church, makes the church a faithful assembly of God's people. Now, if you were to start a new church yourself, like say tomorrow from scratch, you could just redesign what the church would be like, uh, what kind of church would you make? You know, if you had all the sway, if you had full authority to just design the church however you wanted, you know, however you thought would be best, uh, what you thought would be most useful, most faithful, maybe the most, the farthest reaching church possible, the, the church you'd most want to be a part of, uh, what kind of church would it be? What would it be like? Because if you scour the internet, uh, looking at different church websites, for example, you can find as almost many different styles of churches as there are actual churches. You know, maybe you want to start a traditional church, right? Or, or no, we're more contemporary. We're going to be the contemporary church. Or maybe you need a missional church or a hipster church, whatever that would be, right? No, no, we want a word church. That's what we're like. Or we want a service church. Uh, we want a friendly church. I think we need to make an accepting church. No, no, hellfire church for me. That's the kind of church I want. You know, I want a serious church. I want a comfortable church. I want a relevant church. I want a family church. I want a passionate church. I want a relational. I want a community church. Which flavor do you like? Man, out there, it seems like it's Baskin Robbins for churches, doesn't it? What kind of church would you build? But of course, the far more crucial question is this. What kind of church does Christ build? For as we read in our text, Jesus says, I will build my church. The church then, if it's Christ's, it's not really ours, is it? It's certainly not ours to fashion after all of whatever our felt needs might be, whatever our preferences are, or whatever our desires. Instead, if this is going to be Christ's church, then we need to bow before our King, the Christ, the Lord Jesus, and hear from Him, at least hear, what kind of church is He building? And we need to align ourselves with that, don't we, if we're to be the true church. And so what's uncovering in our text then are four marks of Christ's true church. Because Christ is building his church on himself around this true confession of faith in him. And so what that means for us as a church, or means for you in particular, in the first, you need to confess Christ. There's no part of his church unless you have faith in him. You can publicly profess your faith in Jesus. And that means then you join the church. And of course, for many of us, part of grace, you're already there. But that means your responsibility is help us stay built on Christ. We would not waver from our true confession. Well, then we need to see what a true church is like uh, so we know what we're holding ourselves to. And we see that with four marks of a true church. And we looked at this first one last time, is that we confess Christ in the world. And we see that in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 16. This is what defines and informs the church. We confess Christ in the world, a hostile world. Remember the setting, if you can, if you were here last week. Jesus was withdrawing out of Jewish country. He was withdrawing away from the promised land to this place, Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar, because it was a place dedicated to the worship of Caesar to worship Him as God. It was the bastion of paganism, the worship of God of Pan. And yet, strategically, this was the precise place 
that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to tee up this declaration of faith in him. This public affirmation and declaration of who Jesus is. That he is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus strategically set it up to take place here, right in the midst of this dark pagan world. So make no mistake about it, the church will always be like this. Declaring the truth about Christ to a world that ignores him and opposes him. Stand with Jesus and prepare to be opposed just like he was. But here it is. That's the first mark of a true church. We confess Christ in the world. Second, we saw last time and where we ended is that we are converted by the Father to this confession. We are drawn. We are changed. We are brought to faith by the Father to this very affirmation that Jesus is the Christ. We saw this in verse 17. And the upshot for us was this, is that, yeah, we need to be bold about our faith. We need to confess Jesus publicly, even when we're opposed. But that means, though, we can't be proud about it. We can't be arrogant. We can't be vindictive or bitter as others oppose us. And why not? Because even your faith, your, your insight into this heavenly truth, it didn't come from you. It comes to you as a gift from God, the gift of faith to your heart. So why do you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Well, it's because the Father has shown you mercy, because He's blessed you. He's graced you to trust in His Son. Again, this is what He told Peter in the middle of verse 17 there. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. It all comes from Him. So you see then the church, then our faith is the fruit, is the product of heaven's work first in the heart. But as we know, as our text makes clear as it continues, this is not merely about the work of God in individual people, period. As our Father's doing this work in individual hearts, though, Jesus is collecting all of His individuals and making them a one, making them a unit, making them a congregation, making His church. He is forming a new people of God, these confessors of faith around Him. We know it as the church, which takes us to this third mark of a true church is that we congregate around this confession. We congregate then around this joint confession that Jesus is the Christ. He is what forms us, in other words. This is what makes a true church. We come together around Jesus. And we discover this as Jesus continues to speak to Peter just after Peter had made this confession. That is, after Peter discovered and stated who Jesus really was, who he really is, Jesus now goes to explain who Peter is, explaining the meaning of his name, which means rock. So you see it there. Again, Peter makes this confession in verse 16, you are the Christ. But now as we come to verse 18, Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter. Now you might think this is the first time Jesus calls Peter, Peter, or before his name was Simon. You even saw that in this text from last week, Simon, son of Jonah. But this is not the first time he gives him the name Peter. That had occurred, it seems, the first time Jesus met Peter. We see that incident in John's gospel in the first chapter. Listen to John chapter 1, verse 42. 
he brought to him Jesus, excuse me, he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. That's when he got the name. It's when he first met Jesus. That's how his following after Jesus started. Only there in that incident in John chapter 1, when he first meets him at the beginning of his ministry, John's gospel just moves along, doesn't explain the significance of what Peter means, why he's called Peter, which again means rock in Greek. Well, now Jesus explains the significance of this name that he gave him. He uncovers why he gave him such a name. Because even though he had given it to him some time, but now he's explaining it, Jesus, from the very beginning, when he saw Peter, he anticipated this moment. He knew what Peter was going to do. He knew how this would play out. He knew Peter would be the one to first confess his faith publicly before him. Verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, Jesus says. Now, there's so much here. But to unpack this, I want to first clarify the thing that Jesus is doing, namely that what it means that he's going to build his church, and then we can go back and try and straighten out what is the church being built on? What is this rock that he builds his church on? So in the first place then, what does Jesus mean when he says, I will build my church? I mean, I think build is transparent enough. We know what's going on. He's constructing something, building something, and we use metaphors like that all the time, even when we're not constructing physical things, and the same way Jesus is doing here. But what is he building? What is he establishing? What is he constructing? What is this church? Now, of course, we're very familiar with the word church. We use it all the time. You probably said it multiple times this morning. You better get ready for church, right? But for the disciples... As far as we know and recorded in the Scripture, this was probably the first time they ever heard Jesus talking about the church. It's the first time it occurs in Matthew's gospel, and one of the only two times it actually appears in the gospels. And the Greek word behind the English word we translate church, the Greek word there is ekklesia. He's building an ekklesia. He's building my church, he says. Now, think about this. We've heard Jesus, if you've been with us through Matthew, we've heard him talk a lot about the kingdom of heaven, haven't we? We heard him teach tons on the gospel, that this is the good news you need to hear and turn, that the king is here, but not church. This is the first time. Now, when you hear the word church, what do you first think of? What first pops in your mind? Maybe it's a building, you know, with a great steeple, a cross on top. Or maybe you think of something more like this, frankly, a gathering of God's people say together for worship. And honestly, I don't think that would be too far off from what Jesus intends us to think about it or what his disciples understood when he first said it. Though they'd never heard the word, they had some ideas about this notion, the church. Because understand, the word church, at least in the, the Greek, in the original, ekklesia, That's not a new word in Greek. Jesus didn't just make it up here out of thin air. He's pulling from a word that was commonly used, commonly used, honestly, by the Greeks. It was common in the Greek language prior to this. Of course, it didn't have any Christian reference then at the time. 
Most basically, the word church in Greek refers to an assembly. It refers to a congregation. A church then is a gathering of people together with one mind or purpose. Now, so in the New Testament, when you see the word church, it's usually referring to the gathering of believers, right? But not always. Let me take you to one instance where it isn't, that it just means an assembly, and it's clearly not the church. So over in Acts chapter 19, you can turn to the book of Acts or you can just listen. But what was going on here is that Paul had been preaching the gospel here in Ephesus, and the fruit of his ministry would become quite effective, uh, such that the pagans and the idolatrous worshipers, they were losing out on their cash of the money train that was all of their idolatrous worship. And so these pagan Ephesians, they stormed into the streets. They marched, right? They stormed into the streets in their city, and they were chanting out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis was their god that they worshiped. But this, Luke describes, formed an ecclesia. It formed an assembly. Again, the word we often translate church. That's how Luke calls it in Acts 19, verse 32. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly, this gathering of people, was in confusion. But understand that word assembly there in the Greek, it's ecclesia, again, we, which we commonly translate church in the right context. Of course, here it's clearly not the church. It's an assembly of another kind, one against the church and the gospel in favor of their false god Artemis. The point is, most fundamentally, an ecclesia is not a Christian thing, at least at first in the Greek language. It's just an assembly. It's just a gathering of people congregated together. But there's more, as the disciples likely understood more than that when Jesus said, I will build my church. Because that word church or assembly occurs in the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. And there, it properly speaking, doesn't refer to a Christian church at all because the Christian church wasn't around. But rather, like in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10, the congregation there stands for the people of Israel assembled in worship to hear and receive God's law from Moses. Or take this one, 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 3, reads like this. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly. That's the ecclesia in the Old Greek translation. The assembly of Israel, while all the assembly, or church, or congregation, you could say, of Israel stood. If anything, then, the disciples, knowing their Old Testaments, knowing the Greek language, when they heard Jesus speak the word church for the first time, the first thing they probably thought of was the great congregation of Israel, of God's people gathered together in worship and in faith. Only Jesus says that He's not out to strengthen God's existing church. He's not there to build up the existing church. He doesn't purpose to build up and on to Israel what does he say? Jesus says, I will build my church. This is a new thing. This is a new work he is doing. This is a new assembly, a new people of God formed around him at the center. That's what we call the church. Okay, so that's what he means when he says, I'm going to build my church. 
But what is this church built on? What is the rock, the foundation upon which it all stands? How is he going to do this? How is he going to congregate this new people? Well, that's where we come back to the text, So, working back now to Matthew 16. And we come back to Peter and this play on words that Jesus does with Peter's name. For he references Peter, but then he says that he will build his, rock, his church on this rock, right? Matthew 16, verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And so there's clearly this play on words, because Peter's name means rock in the Greek. And Jesus uses nearly the same word to say that he will build his church on this. So if you could kind of translate it or hear it this way, he says, you are Petros, Peter, and on this Petra, rock, I will build my church. Now, if you're not aware, the Roman Catholic faith claims this verse as proof that Peter was indeed actually the first pope, the first pope in a whole line of bishops from Rome who ruled the whole church, that Jesus was establishing him as the lone leader They would say something like, obviously, Christ's church is built on the rock, and Peter's name means rock, so Peter's the foundation. He's the leader. It's built on him. So you better get in line. Only, that's not what this means. And it's not what Jesus meant. And I'll give you a few reasons why. In the first place, in church history, in the early church, the one right after the apostles, No one appealed to this verse, no bishops in Rome even, no early so-called popes because they weren't there, they did not appeal to this verse to make this point, that the pope would then rule the whole church. Why didn't they go there? It seems like such an obvious text because they even understood in the early church that's not what it meant. And not even Peter himself or his fellow apostles understood that's what Jesus meant, that he was erecting a pope over all the church. Because in the immediate context that follows. Because if you just turn over a page or two, look at the beginning of Matthew chapter 18. We find our humble early church leaders, these apostles, in their great humility, debating who must be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Right? At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, hey, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Why would they ask this question if Peter had already been made the head of the church? Because he hadn't been. And rather, a far more humble and matured Peter later on would write the book, 1 Peter. And in the fifth chapter, Peter says, I'm writing to these elders, these local church leaders. And he doesn't say, I'm writing to you as your supreme pope over you. He doesn't say, I'm writing to you as the rock upon which the church stands. He says, he's writing to these local church elders, and he says, I'm writing to you as a fellow elder. He puts his authority right on par with theirs in a similar position. Not even Peter asserted himself as the de facto unchallenged authority over the churches. And that's really good news because any church or faith that rests on any mere man is in big, big trouble. Because those shoulders are far too weak, no matter how much infallibility you ascribe to him. Oh, and if you want to try and ascribe infallibility to Peter, I got some news for you. Jesus had some words for him a little bit later in Matthew 16. Go back there, look at Matthew 16. You know, this Peter, whom Jesus extols, 
He calls him blessed of the Father. He said this revelation from God. He made this great confession. And yet, as you turn to verse 23 of Matthew 16, it reads this way. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Hmm, maybe he missed something. Peter is not ultimately the rock upon which the church is built. And going back to our particular text, Jesus even hints at this as he makes this wordplay on Peter's name. Because, as I noted, Jesus does not technically say that Peter is the rock upon which the church is built, because he actually uses a different word for rock than Peter's name. In other words, he could have very well said, you are Peter, and upon you the rock I build the church. But he doesn't say that. He actually uses a different word for rock. He says, you are Petras, and upon this Petra, different word for rock, I will build my church. And you can hear they're related. They're very similar. It's very similar to Peter's name, but it's not his name. It's not even the word for his name in the sense of rock. And why not? Because Peter's not the rock. Well, why mention Peter at all then? Why do this wordplay? It's obviously playing something on Peter. Why even mention his name? Ah, that's a good question. Even though he's not the rock, he, or what he has done, is related to the rock upon which this church is built. Well, what is it? What makes, in other words, what makes Peter so special here? Just because Jesus says he is? Well, what does the context tell you? What has this whole passage been about thus far? Remember, this whole thing started, Jesus asked them a question. Who do you say that I am? And then Peter gives the right answer. He confesses his faith publicly about Jesus, that he's the Christ. And Jesus affirms that confession and says, you're right, the Father must have revealed that to you. God was the source of the faith that was expressed off your lips in this confession. In other words, what has this text been all about and how does it relate to Peter? He's the first confessor. He's the first publicly professed Christian in that sense, ascribing his faith to Jesus. This is the rock upon which the church is built, this confession. That's what distinguishes Peter from anyone else in this text. He was the first to clearly confess. Jesus will build his church, congregate this new people of God around this common faith and confession, this common trust that Jesus is God and he's our deliverer. That's how the true church is, true church is formed. That's how it's built, this common faith in Jesus. So we rally together as fellow confessors under that banner, under that confession, saying that we have no hope, but Jesus is our Redeemer. If anything, then, Peter is the rock by way of example, by giving us the confession to follow, which is not ultimately to follow Peter, but to follow the one Peter trusts in, the Lord Jesus. So what are the implications of this then? In the first place, the church does not rest or congregate around any one man. The church does not stand or fall, thankfully, live or die on Peter's shoulders or any pope's or pastor's shoulders, not even John Calvin or John Piper or John MacArthur. And certainly not me or any collection of our elders. 
And sadly, we've had all too many reminders of late, right, of pastors falling morally or, or even falling away from the faith altogether. But the true church doesn't rest on them, thankfully. Nor is Christ's true church built on a brand or a church style. It's not about being a word church or a hip church or a multi-generational church or a service church or a compassion church, whatever else. What makes a true church, a real assembly of the people of God, is that it's Christ church, professing faith in Him, assembled around this common confession. And it's Christ church then that He is building, that's a church with staying power, not passing with all the fads of the age, right? Hear it now at the end of verse 18. Matthew 16, verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Shall not. It's not going to happen. Jesus is going to see to it. Now, that expression, the gates of hell, is an interesting one, and we don't have time to go into a great study on it. I'd point you to Isaiah chapter 38, verse 10. Isaiah 38, verse 10. For there is a great example of how this phrase, gates of hell, or similarly, is used. Namely, it just pictures death. It's the place where dead things go. They pass through the entrance of the gates of hell as they die. So Jesus is saying in the first then that this church, the thing that he's building, it's not going to die. And as the gospel unfolds, we can figure out why it won't die. Namely, why? Because death could not stop the one we trust in. Our King, our Christ, rose from the dead and conquered it. Even as Peter himself proclaimed in the first Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says, This Jesus, speaking to the Jews, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Death seemed to have him. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it, would not, it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death could not hold the Son of God down, because he is life. And he gives life by faith to all those who trust in him. He gives life to his church. And if he gives life to his church, nobody can take it down. Indeed, that will be the church with real staying power, as two millennia have proven through persecution, through wars, through divisions, through darkness, through misunderstandings, through controversy, through church splits, through oppression, through martyrdom, the church lives on, alive and well. Why? Because our Christ lives. So let me just add then, what are you giving your life for? What are you investing in? Are you content to know that if it's not Christ, if it's not the building of His church, whatever you're investing in, it's not going to last? This country is not going to last. Political parties aren't going to last. Moral reformation is not going to last. Money won't last. Health won't last. Fun won't last. But there is an institution built by the crucified and risen Jesus that's going to last. His church. Let it be said then that there is life, there is salvation with no one else, only with this Christ and the church that He saved by His blood that is all those who trust in Him. Which presses us to our very next important question. If that be true, 
then we must figure out where we stand with this Christ and where we stand with his people. Are we in or are we out? And how do we know? This is the fourth mark of a true church because we are able to confirm who is in the kingdom, who is in or out of the church. Wow, Rick, that seems pretty bold, doesn't it? We're talking about eternal life issues. We got the authority to say who's in and who's out. Who gave you the right to speak about this? Well, that's a great question. But back to our text here. This next picture that Jesus gives, it's all about authority. Who has the authority to declare and say who's in and who's out with the church? So look at this. Let's look at verse 19, Matthew 16. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. But when Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys, Peter's not like a little teenager ready to get keys to the car that he can turn it on and make it go somewhere. This is more like I give you the keys to the house. I give you access and entrance into my home, heaven. This is about getting the keys that you can get into heaven to meet God, to be counted among the people of God. And gaining entrance into the kingdom of heaven, this idea surfaces time and again in Matthew's gospel. We've seen it already. For example, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember this? Here's what Jesus said. This is Matthew 5, verse 20. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never be part of heaven's people. You'll never get in. And you see here, your righteousness is not the key to open the door for you to get in. It's not going to work. Nor is wealth or money the key to get you into the kingdom. Later on, Jesus says this. This is Matthew 19, verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't pay the guy off at the gate. Nor in the offering box. Anyway, this picture is this entrance into heaven. It has a door. It has a gate. It's got to be opened. For you get access in. And some, even on the earth, have the authority to open it or to say who can open it and come in. But tragically, that key, that authority, it's not found with the religious leaders in Israel, apparently. Later on, Jesus will rail against them like this. This is Matthew 23, verse 13. He says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Why? For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Though the religious leaders talk about God, though they say they serve God, though they say they love God, though they teach about God, they still can't unlock the gate. Actually, they just shut the door to try and get to God. And not just for others, but even for themselves, they don't have the keys. It won't open. It's locked, even for them. Well, who can then? Who has the keys to let us in? Who has such an authority and why? Well, first, who has such an authority? Looking at our text here, apparently Peter does. Listen again to Jesus, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus intends specifically to give Peter these keys, these rights to open the kingdom. Because to be clear, when Jesus says, you there, I give you the keys, in the original language, that's a singular you. It's particular to Peter. It has to be. 
But why? What's so special about Peter? And again, the Catholics are going to interject here and say, you see, I told you, he's the first pope, that's why. Cool your jets, man. Just back up a little. It's okay. Because this verse doesn't stand by itself, does it? Verse 19 doesn't stand alone. Again, what do you have to do? You have to give way to this context, the surrounding verses. Again, I pose the question, what makes Peter so special in this context? Merely because Peter or Jesus says he is? If he has any authority, what does this context tell you is the basis of it? Okay, what have we seen in this text? We've seen Peter boldly confess his faith, right? That's what this has been about. And Jesus confirmed the confession against saying that came from the Father. And Jesus said he would build his church on that like confession. You are the Christ, the Son of God. So why, Peter? Because he's the first clear confessor, believer in Jesus. That's why. And so you see then this confession, in effect, works as the key. This confession works as the key to unlock and open heaven. This faith in Christ opens up access to God and to be a part of the people of God. This confession brings one into the kingdom, into the church. By what authority then can Peter unlock the kingdom, so to speak? Well, it's by the keys of this confession. If someone else's confession aligns with his own, if they join him in like faith and confession and trust in Jesus, then too the Father must be at work in them, then too they must be part of the heavenly kingdom. And we know that by their clear profession of faith in Christ. That's how you can tell if one's in or out with Christ and His church. In the first, does your faith, does your confession align with Peter's? Do you believe that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, your only hope and Redeemer? For as Jesus continues, He explains what it is that these keys actually do. He says they bind and they loose. Look at verse 19 then. In full, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, to explain this, I'm just going to first tell you what it means, and then we're going to go to a cross reference in Matthew 18 to further vindicate that point. But in the first, in Matthew 16 19, what does it mean that Peter can bind and loose? By the keys of the kingdom, While one is on earth, he is able to speak about realities in heaven. He's able to speak of who is bound and then part of the church, or who is loosed and separated from the kingdom of God and the church. In that way, Peter's confession, this key, it's really like an answer key, which you can judge all other confessions by. Or or Peter's confession then becomes like a litmus test. Of course, not to tell you if something's an acid or a base, but his confession tells you whether you have a Christian or not. On that basis then, by the keys of this confession, one is able to declare on earth who is part of God's kingdom and who isn't. And notice too, we noted it there, the interplay in this binding and loosing between what's happening in heaven and what's happening on the earth. There's, there's something happening or being said on earth that corresponds exactly to what's going on in heaven. But how does that work? And even here, there's some debate among the various translators. Notice that the English Standard Version even has a footnote there at the end of verse 19. They give an alternate translation. 
such that the whole verse can be read like this. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven, have been loosed. And again, I think this translation better captures the sense of the Greek tenses here. Because otherwise, understand, it's not like binding someone to the church on earth forces God's hand in heaven to do something. That would seem to be the implication if you took it the way it reads in the main translation there. We're not forcing God to do anything. That would put way too much power on our works, our, even our faith. I dare say far too much. Rather, again, looking at these tenses in the original language, it seems that it's more likely the very other way around, isn't it? We are declaring on earth what God in heaven has already done, you see. Who or what do you bind on earth? It's those who have already been bound or loosed in heaven by the work of the Father in the heart. And doesn't that make sense of the very example of Peter's own confession? Peter made this confession about Jesus, and what did that show? What did Jesus say? He publicly made the confession about Jesus, and then Jesus says, Ah, you are blessed. The Father's at work in your heart. The prior work of the Father is what produces the confession, and all those on earth can now see it and know the Father's at work and receive Him as part of the church. Now, there, we're talking about we. We is the church receiving one who confesses and who doesn't. That we are those who can bind to the church or can loose or remove away from the church. Only in our very text here in Matthew 16, we're talking about Peter. We're not talking about us. Except, let us then turn to this cross-reference. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 18 once again. Because what we find in Matthew 18, actually in verse 18, we find that this very same authority, what the keys do to bind and loose... This kind of authority was not exclusive to Peter. Look at Matthew 18, verse 18. We find this nearly precise parallel to our own text in Matthew 16. Matthew 18, 18 reads, Truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, or have been bound. Same debate there. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, in your English, it looks identical except for one thing. Back in our text in Matthew 16, the you there is singular. It says, I give you, Peter, the keys in effect, and whatever you, Peter, bind shall have been bound, and whatever you, Peter, but that's not how he says it here. In Matthew 18, verse 18, that you there is plural. So if we could translate it with some southern draw, right? Matthew 18, 18 can read something like this. Whatever y'all bond on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever y'all loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This is more than just Peter. Okay, looking at Matthew 18, who is the (laughs) y'all? I don't know about any southern early Christians here, right? Who is this y'all who has the power to authority to bind and loose? Well, just move your eyes up to the previous context. Where are we in the Bible? What is this all about? Just glancing there, this is about the steps of church discipline. This is about members being removed from the church by the church because these particular members or this member, he won't repent from his sin even after he's been warned by the church. Look at verse 17. 
if he refuses to listen to them, that's the, the witnesses that go alongside with the first brother that's confronting them, if, if he won't listen, that is repent, tell it to the church, to the assembly of believers. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. That is, he's no longer a member of God's people. That's what you should treat him like. The church as a whole, the congregation of Christ's people, this gathering of fellow gospel confessors, they have the collective authority by this shared confession to say whether or not one's in the kingdom or one isn't. To say whether one is bound to the church or loosed from it. Well, by what authority can we do that? What are we doing? We're looking for the Father's work in the heart. Well, what kind of things are we looking for? At least from these texts, I'll tell you two things. What are we looking for to be proof the Father's at work in the heart? We'll go to the context of Matthew 16. What would be the proof of the Father's work in the heart in Matthew 16? What did he draw out? It was the confession of faith, wasn't it? That was the Father at work in the heart to bring faith out of the mouth, so to speak. This joint confession we have that Jesus is the Christ. Well, what is it here in Matthew 18? It's whether one lives consistent with their confession. Do they live as one repenting and turning from their sin? Or do they hold on to their sin saying, no, you're not my Christ, you're not my king, I'm my own king? Well, if that's the case, we as the church assembly together have the responsibility to say, well, whatever you say from your mouth, you're not living like one who the Father's been at work in. This confessor must live a life of faith, a life of obedience to Jesus. That doesn't mean perfection, but it means one who's constantly repenting, seeing their sin, confessing it, and turning from it. That person's professed faith coupled with a changed life, that testifies the fathers at work in the heart. And by that basis, then, we can receive them on earth, declare even with relative confidence on earth, they've actually been bound to God's people in heaven already. Oh, that's heavy to think of this correlation between heaven and earth. Well, what's the upshot for all of this for us now? Well, here's a couple takeaways. Do you see then as a member of this congregation the responsibility you have to your fellow members, your fellow joint confessors in this gospel truth? You are responsible to one another to hold one another to our confession that we wouldn't drift from Jesus. You're responsible to see that we're repenting and turning from our sin. This doesn't mean you're supposed to judge everyone all the time until we're all perfect, because newsflash, we won't be (laughs) until Jesus flashes back here. But you are responsible to care for us, to inquire, to pursue your fellow members, lest we drift, lest we seemingly shipwreck our faith through apostasy or sin. And let me add at this moment, just in this world of COVID we're in, many of us are able to come back, but there's some of our fellow confessors or members who can't come back yet. And some of them can't go back expressly because of the virus, for example, or maybe it's their job related to it, etc. They're still our fellow confessors. We've still owned them as part of our church. We need to care for them. And they feel so isolated right now. Some of them so badly want to be with you right here, right now, and just can't. So members... Remind them that you love them, that they confess Christ with you, not that they're isolated as they feel like the whole world's moving on without them. May we not move on without them. Amen? This is part of our responsibility in the whole 
to Christ and one another as the church together. Next, and we touched on this, but as a member of the church, this means we need to keep the main thing the main thing, if not really the only thing, namely the crux of our faith, that Christ must always have center stage. Because what brings us together, and so then what holds us together as the church, it's Christ. It's our common confession of faith in Him. It's not our ethical standards. It's not how we pull the lever in the voting booth. It's not how we school our kids. It's not the kind of jobs we have. It's not our preference for music styles. It's not about our standards of living. Christ is what brings us together. And note this, even when, or especially when, we might passionately disagree about a whole host of other things. But as the church, we unite under the banner of Jesus to say, well, I'm going to table this, or I'm going to at least temper those other passions in my heart. Why? So I can still gather with you under the name of Christ, because we are together by His work and call. Indeed, that's how Christ builds His church, and that's how, by grace, we keep it. On the flip side of that, if you're tempted to be divisive, to be critical, or to pull away from the fellowship, you got to ask the question, why is that? Is it because the assembly has become more concerned about other things than about Jesus? Or is it that maybe you're veering from Christ and the gospel in your passions? Has something in your heart got a greater emphasis in what draws us together as the fellowship as opposed to Jesus? We have to keep Christ first. Upon this, this church stands or falls. And let us at grace be known as a church that's all about Jesus. That's all about the gospel of grace. That's all about that God loves sinners like us, that He came from heaven for sinners like us, that He died for sinners like us, and that He lives for sinners like us, and He saves sinners like us that look to their, His Son. May there be no other banner or flag that flies higher in this assembly than Christ. Or better said, there better be no other flag on that pole but Jesus. May it be said as this true church, just as Paul said to the Colossians, Colossians 1.28, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Oh, we need his help for this. Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be, just extend your mercy to us. Uh, You know our frailty. You know our passions, our hearts. You know how easily we're distracted, how we get things out of a line. Even for good reasons, that is, there's so many good things even to be passionate about in our world. But if they trump or dethrone you at the center, uh, we become on shaky ground. We're no longer in that sense, aligned with the church you're building, we're building some other kingdom. And let that not be said about this congregation. And we're thankful that whatever in your providence you'd have for Grace Bible Church, we know that your true church will not fall because you will not. And your promises are true to the end. But as I know many believers here, people bought by your blood, hold us fast to the end that you've promised and give us the strength to encourage one another into those things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.